Uh, we are in the time of um, vacations, right? And summer breaks. Um, school is out for the summer for the campus students, for our teenagers. School is out. Um, we're going, Leslie and I are, and our family are going on vacation to Williamsburg here in just a couple of weeks. And in America, and in many developed nations of the world, we are blessed, okay, to be able to have the means, to have the financial resources um, to go on a vacation. Um, but for most of human history and for even most of the Earth's population today, uh, there is no vacation. Most have um, lived and still live hand to mouth with no opportunity to store up enough resources to take a break for um, two weeks or more per year. And most will never be able to retire as we understand retirement, uh, meaning having enough wealth to, to carry them comfortably after their working years to their I was going to say death, but I'll say to glory, okay, to their glory. Vacation is good, and we should be grateful for the opportunities to get away, to relax, to recharge with our families and refocus ourselves. And while we look forward to the end of our work, we must always remember that the Lord's work is never finished. Even on the Sabbath, Jesus was doing his Father's work. In John 5, Jesus says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And so there is a work, a type of work that pauses and even ends, but there's another work that never ends, whether we are asleep or awake, on vacation or at home, retired or still in our careers, and that is the Lord's work. And that's where I was led as I looked at our passage this afternoon. If you could please turn with me to Acts chapter 15. It is a, um, a transitional um, passage. I mean, this is a really narrative, I guess, heavy. It is in between the first missionary journey and the Jerusalem Council decision and the second missionary journey uh, where Paul and his companions ultimately get into Europe and major cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, and Corinth uh, receive the gospel. And so... In this second time around, on this second journey, we do see some changes. And these will be our two points for this morning. The first is there is a new team, a new team. And Paul and Barnabas, who joined them on the first journey, um, they have a disagreement and they part ways. And so Paul takes along Silas instead. And as they go, they, they draft Timothy and even Luke joins him for a bit. And then secondly, that we see what we see in this passage is there are new places. Uh, they do go back to some of the churches that we knew had been planted, Lystra and Derby. You can just uh, keep it on the, the title slide. There we go. Thank you. Uh, they do go back to Lystra and Derby, but they also go to churches that we never knew had been planted. So they go through Syria and they go through Cilicia as well. And this transition passage, our transition passage this morning... Um, ends with the vision of Paul receiving a, a vision of a man from Macedonia begging for help. And so they pack up and they head on out to Macedonia. But the main idea this morning is whether through new people or new places, the Spirit continues his work. Whether through new people or new places, the Spirit continues his work. Um, please pray with me and we'll get into our text this morning. Father... Uh, we come to you under the, the covenant and the blood and the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Um, it's through his sacrifice. It's through him being offered up 
that we have the, the privilege of being here this morning, that we have the, the joy of the unity that we share together coming from different walks of, of life and different backgrounds, but all being able to be unified around your son. It's through him that we have the forgiveness of our sins. And even though our lives can be challenging and, and hard, uh, God, we can always rejoice that our sins have been forgiven and that we will see you face to face in the end. Father, we uh, thank you for so many new brothers and sisters that have moved here to the congregation. I pray that uh, they would be salt and light to our fellowship. And Father, we also thank you for those who are leaving, going out on mission teams to go out and to preach the gospel. We pray that your hand would be upon them, that your spirit would guide those two mission teams, and that many, many, many souls would be saved in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and also in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania as well. And Father, for those of us that are staying back, let us hear your words this morning, Lord. Let our ears be open. Let our minds be open. Help us to see the light of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 15. I'm going to break the reading into to three, three chunks this morning. But the first section is just simply Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 36. And it says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so again, first point is simply new people. Paul initiates this return to the towns where they had preached the gospel before to go back and to check up on them. And it's a great feeling and it builds your faith to return to a place or to a church and see people that God has used you to help. And to see them still faithful. Leslie and I had the chance to go back to Cincinnati just a couple of weeks ago. And literally there are teens that we had studied the Bible with. That we trained who are now faithful, married, have their own children. And some of them even have gray hair. Like wow. Teenagers are now graying. When I had the chance to go back to Trinidad, there were ministries that were started by the Spirit. While we were there and those ministries are still doing well. That's a great Boost to your faith, and it's encouraging. And I know many of us have gone to different places, and we've seen other people that are still faithful, and it brings smiles to all of our faces. Amen? This is what it would have been like for Paul as he would have gone back. Here in this section, uh, beginning of the second missionary journey, there's no mention of a call like there was in Acts chapter 13. Uh, I assume Paul knew that he'd already been called. And didn't need to continue prompting over and over and over again. Paul, you need to go back out and preach the word. He didn't need that in order to carry on the Lord's mission. He knew that as long as there were lost souls, the Lord's work was never done. But Paul and Barnabas get into an argument about whether or not to take along John Mark. John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. And it seems as if the work was just too much because he had deserted them in the first part of the first journey. And so Barnabas wanted to take him on the second journey, but Paul would have none of that. He's like, uh-uh, I ain't taking him. 
And so Paul uh, wanted um, people, uh, Paul wanted to, people to have his back when the going got tough. And I think we could all understand that. I mean, we read the stories of the situations that Paul was in. He was in some dangerous situations. And who would, who would want to take, a, I don't know, a, a, a green newbie, I guess, along and just have them turn and leave while you're in the heat of the battle, right? Nobody wants that. But Barnabas, he was an encourager. Barnabas was a bridge builder. Barnabas believed in John Mark and wanted to give him a second chance. On top of that, again, it was his cousin, so he was sentimental towards John Mark. And so maybe Barnabas thought that Paul was too strong, too demanding, and maybe Paul thought Barnabas was too soft and sentimental. It's easy to see both sides of the argument. But it's a funny contrast from the unity that was just forged and established at the beginning part of Acts chapter 15 through the council for this next section here to be really about division between Paul and Barnabas. And we talked about unity is very, very hard to forge and to build, but it's very easy to destroy. And we see an example of that here in this section. Verse 39 says, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. The, the Greek word here for sharp disagreement is the same Greek word in Hebrews 10.24, where we read, um, let us then spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It's a very strong word in the Greek, and so therefore they had a very strong argument. It wasn't simply a disagreement. It was an argument. And so they decide to part ways. Barnabas takes John Mark to Cyprus. This is where Barnabas was from, so he was kind of going back to his, his homeland. And history says that Barnabas died there on Cyprus preaching the word. Paul takes another Jewish leader from the Jerusalem church by the name of Silas. And this was um, this whole disagreement and argument was later worked out. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 uh, reads in such a way that it seems like Paul and Barnabas are back together again. And then in 2 Timothy 4, at the end of Paul's life, Paul asked for John Mark to come and be with him because Paul says that John Mark was helpful to him in his ministry. So they did get to reconcile Later on. Now, some use this passage as justification for denominations. And they say, well, sometimes you just have to part ways if you, you know, if you can't agree. I would just think, I mean, what are you saying? That you part ways and you just kind of start your own church with a completely different teaching? That doesn't seem to be what uh, the passage is reflecting here. I mean, Paul and Barnabas disagreed over who to bring on a missions trip, not what to teach on the missions trip. You see what I'm saying? They were still part of the same church, even though they went on separate missionary paths. Okay? And I think therein lies the lesson. Even though we have differing views on methods, approaches, and even people, God can still use us to his glory. You notice as you read this verse, I mean, verses 36 through 41... Um, it ends with what? Verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. There was no judgment that Luke placed upon this. He didn't say, and at the end of the day, Luke was right. Or at the end of the day, Paul was right. He just kind of just writes, this is, this is just what happened. He just writes it down. A lot of the Bible is that way. But Luke places no judgment upon it. And so... Um, I think that we just have to look at it as it is. They parted company. They got reconciled later. They had beef for a little while, but they fixed it. Amen. They both went along their way by the Spirit to preach the gospel. And 
you know, I'm just thinking of applications for us. You know, should we all should we have all church services at the Sandler Center where it's kind of big, you know, mega church feel and we can attract and draw large crowds and have great productions on the stage? Or is it better to have smaller, more intimate house church services? I think we're going to need both in order to evangelize the world. Should we have more uh, relationship lifestyle evangelism? You know, as I go to the grocery store and I reach for the tomato and somebody else reaches for the tomato. And I say, oh, whoa, we're both reaching for tomatoes. This must be a sign from God, you know. Should it be more relaxed like that or should it be more rigid? I'm going to the mall and, hey, you want to study the Bible? You want to come to church and you know about Jesus? Should we do it more lifestyle evangelism or more cold contact evangelism? I think the answer is yes. We need to do both. We need all kinds of evangelism. Do you see what I'm saying here? Do we reach out to the young or to the old? I mean, we need old people for wisdom, but hey, the young people are going to be the future leaders of the church. Do we need to reach out to the rich or to the poor? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. We need to reach out to everybody in every way, using every methodology, using every new person that we can corral to get the gospel out there. And I think that's what we can learn from this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. God can and will use each and every one of us because his work is never done. Continuing in chapter 16, it says Paul came to Derby. And then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the, deci- I'm sorry, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. You can put up my next slide there with the map. And so instead of getting on a ship um, to your, the bottom, you see the two blue stars there? There's one on the bottom right. There's one kind of on the top left. And there's a red line connecting the two. That's kind of what we're talking about here. So the bottom right corner is where they began the second journey in Antioch. And then the, um, the blue star in the top right is kind of where our passage concludes today. But instead of getting on a ship and heading south to Cyprus, you see that island there in the Mediterranean Sea in the purple. Instead of going there like they did uh, the first time, this time they travel over land and they head west through Syria and the region of Cilicia. Now Cilicia is where Paul was from. Tarsus was in Cilicia. And so even though we haven't heard any mention of any churches being planted in Cilicia, there very well could have been other missionary activity going on in those areas. Or Paul himself could have started those churches while he was kind of there for whatever, seven or eight years or so before Barnabas went to find him and brought him to Antioch, on and on and on. But anyway, after traveling through Cilicia, they arrive at the Gentile towns of Derbe and then also Lystra. And it's here that we find the second person that's added to Paul's team, Timothy. And we're introduced to him here for the first time. We quickly learn some things about him. If you could look here with me in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, first of all, that Timothy was a disciple. Do you see that? Where a disciple named Timothy lived. And so... 
Timothy could have been converted there in Lystra when Paul was there the last time. Or perhaps Timothy could have been converted by someone who's converted by Paul when he was there the last time. We don't know. What else do we learn about Timothy? It says that his mother was Jewish and a believer, but his father was a Greek. This would have been scandalous for the Jews. Here we have a Jewish woman, and we know from 2 Timothy that her mother, Timothy's grandmother, was also Jewish. And here she is um, in a relationship with a Greek, not only in a relationship, but has a baby by a Greek as well. What else do we learn? Verse 2, the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Timothy was a good guy. He was a young guy, but he was a good guy, right? And then we also read that Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him. So that means that Timothy had not been circumcised. Now, Judaism is matrilineal, meaning you get your Jewishness through your mother versus through your father, which would be patrilineal. And since Judaism is matrilineal, Timothy's mother was Jewish, and so that would have made Timothy also Jewish. But he'd never been circumcised according to the Jewish law and the Jewish custom. Why not? Probably because his father didn't want him to be circumcised. I doubt it's that he didn't want to be circumcised. I doubt that it's his mother didn't want him to be circumcised. Because again, 2 Timothy says that Timothy had been taught from infancy the Holy Scriptures. And so probably his father didn't allow it. But since the Jews in that area knew that Timothy's father was a Greek, and they would have talked about that, right? You know, here she is. Here's the woman that married the Greek man. And oh, there's her son, right? He's a Jew, but he hasn't been circumcised. I mean, there would have been a whole lot of like, we don't really know about this guy, right? Paul's gospel, the gospel and Paul's synagogue strategy would have been hindered by Timothy not being circumcised. The Jews would have questioned his allegiance, in a sense. So they decided, Timothy, or Paul decided to circumcise Timothy so that Timothy could establish clearly in their minds where he stood. And so that they would be able to trust him. Now up to that point, it looked like he had stood with the Gentiles. Because here is a young man who had never been circumcised before. And so it says that Paul circumcised him. I don't know if Paul actually performed the procedure or not. Um, the Greek can also be translated that Paul had him circumcised. But Paul was a rabbi, and rabbis did perform circumcisions. I just don't know if Paul did this one. That's all. It would be quite awkward. But anyway. <laughs> Timothy. This is a great example of being flexible in the non-essentials. And talk about becoming all things to all men in order to save some, right? Non-essential, Paul wasn't circumcising him in order for Timothy to be saved. Paul was circumcising him in order for fellowship to be brought together and for Paul to be able to, or Timothy be able to be able to relate. And Timothy being, I mean, it's one thing at a baby, you don't really remember it. It's another thing as a young man, right? Timothy could have said, well, I mean, boy, um, no one's going to know, so, so why should I? He could have said that, but for the sake of being able to relate, 
and to preach the gospel, Timothy was flexible on this non-essential. Are we willing to be the same way in order for the gospel to spread? Sometimes we can really dig in our heels on non-essential issues and the gospel ends up being hindered because of it. I remember when uh, we were in Trinidad, I had gotten my Trinidadian citizenship. I'm a dual citizen. I got Trinidadian citizenship and a Trini passport. That was such a great day. And it was a great day. That Sunday, I had um, put up a slide on the screen showing me the picture of my Trini passport. And it was a good day because it brought me street cred in the eyes of the Trinidadians. I was now able to say things that I was not able to say before. Because... I'm a Trini now. I'm no longer just a Yankee, which is what they used to call me. And because now I'm a Trini, I can bring it to the church, okay? And even if there were guests who had gotten offended by some of the things that I said, because people I know would sit in the congregation like, oh, boy, who this Yankee is, boy, coming up in here talking. They would say all kinds of stuff. But you know what? As soon as they say it, you know what? The Trinis would be like, you know this man, a Trini too? He a Trini too. And you know what? They would just calm right on down. Calm right on down. And so there's something to be said about becoming all things to all men. And making that connection with people so that the gospel can be preached. Anyway, the mission rolled on. Even though they were, there were new people. Paul... Silas and now Timothy were able to be effective as they delivered the decision from the church in Jerusalem because it says in verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. God doesn't only work through one person, one church, one team of people, or one strategy. Once we are unified around preaching the same gospel, He can and will work through all of us because his work is never done. Amen? Amen. Point number two, new places. New places. Acts chapter 15, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 16, verse 6. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so new places. They move on from where they were in Lystra and Derby, and they begin to branch out to new places to preach the gospel. And they move through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia. If you could put up the the map slide. Yes, thank you. And so um, we see Galatia there in the green. Uh, the, um, Phrygia is kind of, kind of where the, the red is, the red line is from Derby to Antioch and Pisidia. That region is Phrygia, but it's just not showing up on the map. But Luke makes a couple of interesting statements that shows how their path was directed. Now, when you're reading Acts, there's a lot of just 
weird names and places, Phrygian, Pamphylia, Galatia, Asia. You're thinking, is that where the Chinese are in Asia? But actually, in the first century, you see Asia kind of in the pink, right, in the center. It's known as Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. And so it's great as you read through the book of Acts to get out your map and to kind of put your finger on some of these places so that as you read, it makes more sense and things begin to come together. But it looks like they they tried to go west into Asia Minor. They were probably trying to get to Ephesus because it was the leading city of that area. But it says that they were prevented by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Why would the Holy Spirit stop or prevent someone from preaching the word? I thought the Holy Spirit wanted the word to be preached, right? Just makes sense. They try to go north. They go north and they try to get into Bithynia. Bithynia is up there in the green at the very top, just south of the Black Sea. But it says that they couldn't because of the spirit of Jesus. It says they tried to enter Bithynia, verse 7, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. What is up with that? And so they go on down to the, to the, to the coast. They head west along the, the northern part of Asia Minor. And they end up in Troas, and that's where Paul has the vision of the man of Macedonia. Macedonia would then be across the water. You can't really see. It's kind of gold in the upper left-hand corner. But Macedonia is that part that we would now consider Europe today. What is this about? Why would the Spirit stop them from preaching? My question is, how did they know that it was the Spirit of God? How did they know that it was the Spirit of Jesus that stopped them? And how did Paul know that this man from Macedonia begging for help really was a man begging for help versus what he ate that night? Maybe he has some bad lamb inside of his stomach. I don't know. How do you know, right? In the modern Western world, and I'm not talking about just us here in Virginia, up here in the Hampton Hampton Road Church. I'm talking about Western thought. So I'm talking about all of North America. I'm talking about all of Western Europe, including the British Isles. I'm talking about um, large parts of Australia and even Asia, right? This is what, what we consider the Western world today, and we have Western thought. We think rationally. Rational thought came about from the Renaissance. And it's been great because it's led to tons and tons of technological, scientific advances. Rational thought is simply A plus B equals C. C, yes. And on top of that, I need to be able to touch it, taste it, smell it, hear it, and feel it. And I need to be able to measure it, right? That's rational thought. This rational thought has led us in the Western world to lean more on what we observe and the natural world than we do on the spiritual side of of our thinking and of life. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because leaning on what we see, smell, taste, touch, feel, measure, this rationalistic thought leads us to less faith. It leads us to less faith so that when we read passages like this, We think, but how did the Holy Spirit actually do that? Like, did he send a letter to them? 
You know, did they get a text message? You see what I'm saying? We're talking, we're looking for the practical, actual thing. Now, if you go and you read this passage in like Congo, in Africa, or you read this passage in South America, you read this passage in some of the villages in Haiti, they'll look at this and they'll think, okay, yeah, that's what God did. If you read this in some of the more um, pagan cultures, they'll say, okay, well, that's what your gods did. They blocked you from doing that. They, they would have no problem with it whatsoever. Wouldn't question it, wouldn't be confused by it. But because of us and the way that we think, we don't naturally connect to spiritual things. On top of that, the modern Western world has more. We're more affluent. We are the most Affluent society and group of people mankind has ever known in the history of planet Earth. We don't need to trust in something other than what we see. I've got everything I need. I've already got everything I need. I've got running water. I've got air conditioning. I've got a car. I've got Wi-Fi. I've got nice clothes. I've got food in the refrigerator. And I've even got unlimited data on my cell phone. I've got everything. Because we have more, we don't need to lean on anyone and we are now independent people. I'm talking about the Western modern world. Long gone are the days when you would go across the street, knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, Mabel, I'm making a cake, but I need a cup of sugar. I need two eggs. No one does that anymore. Why? Because I don't need to. I've got a car, and guess what? Walmart's open 24 hours. I go right on down the street. I buy as much eggs and as much sugar as I need to. I don't need to wait for the milkman to come. I go to Kroger, Food Line, wherever. I'll get it delivered to my house by Amazon Prime if I want to. I can have a drone come and literally drop milk on my front door if I want to. And so because we think this way and because we're independent and we don't need, then it goes into, I don't need you. And then it's, I don't want to need you. Now, I don't want to need you. There was a time and a place when people needed and wanted Direction in their lives. In the modern Western world with our independence, we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. I can do it myself. Thank you very much. Do you see what I'm saying? And so it's hard for us to relate to something that would have been so obvious to a first century reader. Again, they would have said, of course the Holy Spirit. He did that. Of course the Spirit of Jesus would have done that. And you notice Luke offers no explanation for these things. He doesn't say, well, let me show you exactly how the Holy Spirit did this or how the Holy or how the spirit of Jesus did that. He just writes it down because for him it was like, yep, this is just what happened. Do you see what I'm saying? You know, John 10, chapter three or John, chapter 10, verse three says the gatekeeper, this is Jesus speaking. And he says the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Jesus wants and expects us to know his voice and follow him. Therefore, God has spoken and speaks in ways that we can understand. He speaks to us in many different ways. His word, obviously, is very concrete, very rational. We understand that. But he does speak through visions. He does speak through dreams. He does speak through other godly men and women. He does speak through the creation. Read Romans 1. And he does speak through life's circumstances. Again, the problem for us in the modern Western world is that we are mostly deaf to what God has to say. We hear the spirit of this world and we hear our own thoughts loud and clear. That comes through. We recognize it. But listening to the spirit and hearing the spirit's voice is like picking out the voice of someone you've never met in a crowded football stadium. We just don't hear him as we try to assimilate all the different things that compete for our thoughts on a day-to-day basis. But the way that we start to learn to know his voice is by knowing him. When we know him, we will know his voice. It's like the child who hears its mother. There are some of you moms, you could go back in the children's ministry run right now. The kids will be running all throughout the room, doing everything that they're doing, right? Knocking each other down and spilling applesauce. And it'll be just a great calamity back there. But as soon as you say, Johnny, Mary Lou, they'll know your voice. Or at least the really young ones will. As you get a little bit older, they kind of forget. But the young ones, right? Especially the babies. They know your voice. Or when you're in a foreign country, everyone's around you speaking a foreign language, and then all of a sudden you hear English. Ding, 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 ding. You key in on that, don't you? You hear it very, very clearly. You know, our children, the, we've all heard of selective hearing before, right? So I'm going to go after the teens here for a moment. So, you know, your, 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 your child can be doing whatever they're doing. They've got the, you know, the headphones in and... You're like, hey, can you clean your room? And they're still just going, jamming away, doing whatever they're doing. But then you could be like off, like in the the backwoods of your house, like in the shed, right? And you're kind of whispering to your wife like, hey, honey, I think this is what we might need to get our children for Christmas or for their birthday. What? What'd you say? What what is it that you're going to get me? You see what I'm saying? There's a certain language that we hear. There's a self-motivated language, okay? That comes through loud and clear to all of us. There's another type of language. Normally when it goes against what we want, that we have deaf ears to. We don't hear it as well. You know, every morning, not every morning, most mornings, the dogs of our neighborhood have an argument. And this happens, I don't know, 6.30, 7 in the morning. All of a sudden, it's just like... And it's just like crazy pandemonium throughout the entire neighborhood for 
And our dog, she's just sitting there, just snoring away. Won't say, her ears won't even, won't even like, you know the dog's like, doop. Her ears don't even do that. Snoring away. But in the middle of that pandemonium, if our neighbor's dog, his name is Trey, our neighbor's dog's name is Trey. If Trey just starts to get into it, then he's got this voice, this bark. And then our dog, she gets up, she goes to every single different window in the house, she's looking for Trey. She hears a specific voice. I'm just trying to make this point here, okay? Listen, this is how we need to be. This is how we need to be with God's voice. So close to God that even though the world and our emotions and the phone notifications and the music and our friends and life are talking all at once in this cacophony of sounds and desires and pulling and tugging and everything else, even though all that is going on, we need to still hear the still, small voice of God. And we need to be so close to God that when God speaks in that still, small voice, we hear it. What was that, Father? What was that that you said? Do you see what I'm saying? That's what happened with Paul. That's how he knew it was the Holy Spirit that prevented him from preaching in Asia. That's how he knew it was the Spirit of Jesus that stopped him from going into Bithynia. That's how he knew that the vision wasn't just bad food. He was close to God and he knew the voice of his good shepherd. It doesn't really answer the question as to why the spirit would stop them from preaching. But I think as you read the following chapters, as we go through in these upcoming weeks, it's going to be obvious because God simply had a better plan than they did. He wanted to take them to a new place. He wanted to use them to preach the gospel in some of the largest cities in the empire, Corinth, Athens, and later on, Ephesus. And aren't you glad they listened? Aren't you glad they listened? I'm sure Luke was glad. Look in verse 10. It says, after Paul had seen the vision, we, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Up to all the way up to this time, over the last 16, whatever, some odd chapters in Acts, Luke had been writing in the third person. They, 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 they. This is the first time he interjects himself into his writing and now says, we. Why is that? Well, probably because Luke got converted in Troas. As Paul and Silas and Timothy were being redirected to new places by the Holy Spirit, instead of going into Asia initially and heading north and not being able to go to Bithynia and then ending up in Troas, they probably met Luke there. He probably became a Christian there. And now Luke is deciding to go along on the mission with them. And we'll read about that in the upcoming weeks here. Luke was fired up that they listened to the Holy Spirit. Luke was fired up that they heard God's voice. Jeremiah 30 verse 21 says, For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me, declares the Lord. 
We've got to walk with him. We've got to talk with him. We've got to spend time with him, church. We've got to cast our anxieties on him. And we've got to listen to him speak to us. Is the Lord guiding you to a new place? A place better than where you're currently trying to go. A place where people need help and the gospel preached to them. Are you close enough to him to hear his voice? To even know? Close enough to him to hear his sound above all the different distractions, the worries and the temptations of this life? And once we do hear him, will we obey? If you're visiting, do you need help this afternoon like the man from Macedonia? If so, do what he did. Ask for it. Ask whomever brought you this morning to open the scriptures with you and teach you about the grace of God shown through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, and how you can receive this amazing grace. Paul didn't take a vacation after his first missionary journey. He dealt with the Judaizers in Jerusalem and then got back out there preaching the word and saving souls. His argument with Barnabas didn't stop him. God brought him to new people in Silas and Timothy, and the mission kept going. If God can still work through their differences, he can surely work through ours. God took them to new places. The push into Macedonia would begin the spread of the gospel throughout Europe. So let's devote ourselves to be so close to the Lord that we can hear his voice as he leads us to new places and uses us to make an eternal difference through Jesus Christ. Because until Jesus returns, the Lord's work is never done.